You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. Gosh, I wish I'd have known we were doing rap ministry this morning. I would have tried to do a sermon in rap, but maybe another time. So turn in your Bibles, please, Uh, Malachi 3. We have two more talks in Malachi. Pastor Jason's going to wrap up next week. I hope you've enjoyed this study, Uh, really reflecting on the covenant love relationship we have with God through Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing. This passage is incredibly important because it asks crucial questions that have literally been asked throughout biblical history. So I'm going to highlight four of those questions, and then you'll see them come from the text. Question number one is, is God just? That's a big question in our culture. Would you agree? Can he handle all the affairs of this world, the righteous and the unrighteous affairs? Is he truly involved, sovereign, seated on the throne, and will one day he sort through all the good and the mess? That's going to come out of our text. It's certainly been highlighted already in Malachi chapter 2. Another question, which is crucial, does serving the Lord have any value? Now, those of us who just came off a week at VBS, oh my goodness, we know the answer to that question, right? Uh, Our 21-month granddaughter was with us the whole week. Her name is Peanut. And she had the time of her life at VBS. So... Uh, so thankful to the kids. They loved honor, blessed her. But there's a question that's being asked, certainly in Scripture. You're going to see it. Is it valuable to serve the Lord? And so maybe we could paraphrase it. When we pray, does God hear? Does he answer our prayer? Does he work in concert with our prayer? It's a good question. What about generosity? Is it truly a valuable thing in God's eyes that you and I live generous with our time, treasure, talent, and touch. I had a friend not too long ago. He's a pastor. Just imagine sitting in a staff meeting, and they're evaluating worship for that past week. It was Easter week, Holy Week. And as they're evaluating the worship service, he had this uh, thought just racing through his mind constantly. And as they're evaluating what they were doing as a church and ministry and serving at the church for many years, his thought was, I don't care. Can you imagine being in pastoral ministry for a long, long time? He was in his 50s, sitting there saying, I don't care. Something happened in his faith journey. He got discouraged, demoralized. He was hurting. He was empty. And he says, you know what? Count me out. And he resigned his position uh, shortly after. It's a real issue, guys, in our culture, in our church. Is it valuable to serve God? The third one that comes from our text is, does God really care? Does he see your life? Does he take notice when you try to live in a manner worthy of the gospel? The text just basically says, does he take notice about your right living? You're trying to live with integrity, to please the Lord. And then the final one is a reframe throughout all the Bible, but especially the Old Testament. And the Old Testament says, what about the wicked and why are they prospering? It seems unjust. These things shouldn't be. 
But then on the flip side, if the wicked are prospering, how about when the righteous suffer? Those are the core questions that come from these few verses in Malachi 3. In the mid-1990s, a missionary couple gave their lives to Somalia. A tough time. This was during the season of Black Hawk Down. They were deployed from Kentucky. They said yes, all in, to a very difficult context. But in the middle of their ministry in Somalia, they began to ask these crucial questions that are highlighted in our passage. I want to show you a couple-minute clip. It's part of the trailer to their film titled Insanity of God. Let's take a look. He said, I'm, I'm going. The thing is, I don't know when I'll be back. It was like getting in a plane in the New Testament and getting off the plane in the Old Testament. It was like I had flown into hell. And he said, Nick, they eat little missionaries like you for lunch. I stepped out of the plane, and it was like you could taste darkness. It just became open hunting season. And on this one day in August, they killed four of my best friends. You don't think about things like this for your children. There was a feeling of um, that everything in my body had gone to my stomach. The looks that you get from people is, if you hadn't taken your son to Africa, he'd still be alive. very, very difficult time because believers in Somalia, 1991, there were about 150 of them, and by 1997, only four were left alive. That's, uh, that's crucifixion almost without resurrection. And that's why we left Somalia so broken as we watched a whole generation of believers wiped out. How can you stand crucifixion without resurrection? So just imagine being a missionary family, losing your son in that part of Africa, seeing four of your colleagues martyred for the gospel in one day, and the attrition in the church, 150 to a handful in five years. Let me ask you, do you think you would have questions for God? Nick and Ruth Ripkin had a ton. I'll end this morning with the rest of their story. And so, folks, we come to a passage where there's two groups of people. I hope you have your Bible open to Malachi 3. This is a very important talk in our faith journey if we want to plan on finishing well. Two groups of people. One group in the text lost faith because of circumstances. Now, the circumstances is far-reaching. Remember, it's 430 B.C. Persia still has control. They have a thumb on Israel. They hate it. The temple wasn't as glorious as it once was under Solomon. They're frustrated. 
There's a half-heartedness towards God. Remember, they're giving God their leftovers. They're questioning their love relationship with God. Does God really love us? Where is he in these dark days? That's the heart and soul of Malachi. And so through circumstances, which are always different, mid-1990s, yours and mine today, I don't know your story, maybe you don't know some of mine, but we all have our story. Through circumstances, a large group, the vast majority of the people of Israel lost faith. But you know what, group number two, and hopefully it's the group we fall into, there's a remnant. Get used to that word in Scripture because it shows up Old Testament, New Testament. There's always the faithful God-fearers, the individuals who say yes to God regardless of the circumstances. That doesn't mean they don't hurt. That doesn't mean they don't cry or mourn, as Jesus encouraged. Blessed are those who mourn, but they still stay in the game. They live like Paul. For me to live is Christ. To die, there's gain. And so, stand with me. We'll read the text, and then we'll dive in. Malachi 3, beginning with verse 13. And if you're new to Malachi, just know this. There's this dialogue, this interchange between God and his people. And there's a real corporateness about this. So if you can imagine Revelation 2 and 3, it's Christ communicating to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Very similar. So here's this dialogue. Here's what the Lord says. Your words against me are harsh, says the Lord. What a thing for God to say to his people. You're harsh towards me. Your heart is hardened towards me. Why? Because words reflect heart. We'll see that later in this morning's talk. Yet you ask. Remember the sarcasm. People push it back against God. What have we spoken against you? And then the Lord responds. Look at this. You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements, by walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. They get away with it. They get away with murder. That's the indictment from God's people on the Lord. Now, here's the other group, and it's beautiful, folks. At that time, those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord took notice and listened. That's quite remarkable, isn't it? Look at the fellowship that's going on among the remnant, and look how God's responding. So a book of remembrance was written before him, meaning before the Lord, for those who feared Yahweh and had re high regard for his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. A special possession on that day I am preparing. We'll talk about that day next week. I'll have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. And notice the conclusion. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Please be seated. So I hope this morning you have your Connect card. I always like to start out with the blessing. The blessing basically is the big idea behind the talk, and it's this. 
I believe as I studied this passage this week, this is what God gave me. It's better to walk in the fear of the Lord than to let circumstances of life destroy your faith. I could say this, after 30, 43 years of being a believer, there were two or three times where circumstances whacked me and boy, oh boy, questioned the faith. That's what's going on here. These are challenging days for Israel. Some said yes, they leaned into their difficult days. Others says no, done. And they walked away from God. They no longer feared the Lord. I want to start out with Proverbs 9.10 because the concept of fearing the Lord is quite misunderstood in our culture today. We're not talking about being afraid of God. We've already discovered that he loves us. And if someone loves us, you shouldn't be afraid of them. Going back to my granddaughter, oh my goodness, to have eight days back to back with little peanuts and to express love and to receive love, to have father-granddaughter relationship, we have to think in terms of who God is. He's not someone we're to be afraid of. But the fear of the Lord is a major and dominant theme in Scripture. So let me try to give you a little idea of what, what it's all about. Proverbs 9.10, notice what it says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's in parallel in Hebrew. Basically, to be a God-honoring person, to have wisdom from above, begins with fearing God properly. How do you do that? Notice the next phrase. By having a knowledge, a biblical knowledge of the Holy One. So it starts with understanding who God is, what he's done. We covered that a few weeks ago. This is theology. Theology is called the queen of the sciences. To know who God is is quite a remarkable gift, folks. And so I passed this by the elders this past week, and we talked a little bit about trying to define something so big. But let me give you a definition that we processed uh, this past week. Here's how I like to define the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the work of the Holy Spirit that fills us with a sovereign respect for God and makes us dread above all things to offend him. There's three things that are very important in that definition. Number one, it's God's work in and through us. This is Holy Spirit work. He causes us to stand in awe and reverence of God. In other words, it presupposes you have a knowledge of the Holy One. You've come to genuine faith uh, in God through Jesus Christ, and that's where it begins. We're talking now about being a Christian. You can't truly fear God biblically without knowing him through Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. But notice what else. It fills us with a sovereign respect. That's what Israel lost here. They kept questioning God one issue after another. You're not just. We can't trust you. Oh, my goodness. God loved them so much, favored them as a treasured possession, and they're questioning their covenant love relationship. What about redemption? Don't you remember when I took you to myself out of slavery 400 years in Egypt, and God kept jockeying their memory, and yet they wouldn't stand in awe. They wouldn't revere him. They wouldn't look back. And so, yes, God is on the throne. He is sovereign. And we have the privilege to worship him. 
But notice the third component. And I would contend this is one that was missing uh, very deeply in Israel in 430 BC, just between the dialogue and the disrespect they showed God. They slandered his name. They gossiped about him. But look at the last part of this definition. It makes us dread above all things to offend him. Folks, that means he's holy. He's absolutely righteous. He's perfect. And what that does is what happened to Isaiah when he saw the Lord of glory seated on the throne, what happened? He says, woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. His heart was convicted. He saw sin like he'd never seen it before. I promise you this. The closer you grow to God through Jesus Christ, the more intimate you become in your relationship with him through the word, the more sin you're going to see in yourself. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. All that means is we'll value the grace of God through Jesus Christ all the more. But folks, we should dread sinning against the holy and righteous one. But when we do sin, what, what does Scripture say? We confess our sin because he's faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to encourage you, go on your own journey. It's a beautiful study, The Fear of the Lord. Read an article by uh, Pastor John MacArthur this past week, helped me out in understanding it. There's so much, it's so rich. But that's where it begins. The second group had this awe, this reverence, this work of God in their life, regardless of their circumstances, they, they stuck in there. So I want to share with you four walks of what it looks like to stand in awe of God, to revere him, to be led by the Spirit, and to dread sin. So walk number one, we walk God-focused. And friends, this is beautiful from the passage. Look at verse 14. We have a negative example, but we're going to flip it around. Here's what the text says. You have said it is useless to serve God. Notice the next phrase. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? Isn't that an interesting statement? How honest they are, but how self-centered they are. Their spiritual antennas were set for W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? And friends, when that is our ultimate motivation to serve the Lord, to be self-centered, we're in trouble. And don't think this is a, uh, a new concept in Scripture. This is foundational. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you want to flip to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus addressed this foundationally with the Pharisees when he ministered to them. Can you imagine being a religious leader in Christ's day, a pastor, if you will, and Jesus calls you out and says, don't be like the pastors of North America. You know why? Because they pray, they fast, and they give for one reason, to be seen by men. They do it with a ill motive, a self-centered glorification. Their goal in serving God was to be personally edified. How sad. What a remarkable thing that Jesus would call out three spiritual disciplines that you and I value so much. Generosity, fasting, praying. And yet they corrupted it because their hearts were impure. 
Years ago, I read an uh, article by a revivalist, and they write differently. Uh, they write literature to really impact your heart. And one of the statements that came out of that article is, motives sanctify or defile anything. In other words, you could have the best act biblically, giving, fasting, praying. If your motives are corrupt, guess what? It can defile it. Therefore, Jesus says to the Pharisees, don't be like them. Man, that's calling someone out. That's challenging stuff. And so, what do we do when our natural inclination, I don't know about you, but I think in the flesh, our natural inclination is self-centeredness, not God-centeredness. Would you agree? Sometimes we have to really work hard to get over what's in it for me. Can I give you one suggestion? And there's so many ways we could have gone for application on this. But I want to give you one that I think really helps on a daily, moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour basis. It's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Here's what uh, Paul says. It's give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What I thought about, if I was in Israel's shoes, coming back from Babylon, being in captivity, going through those difficult circumstances, looking back at the glory years, things weren't as good as I had hoped. Uh, my expectations of God kind of fell through. Instead of looking in real time at what God was doing, what God was offering, and giving thanks to him, what were they doing? They were looking at what they didn't have instead of what they did have. And I think the remedy for that, folks, is giving thanks in everything. And so some of you know this word, Eucharist. How many of you are familiar with Eucharist? It comes right from 1 Thessalonians 5. The Greek word Eucharisteo is a beautiful word and basically has three connotations. And what I want to encourage you today by application to be God-centered versus self-centered, live eucharistically. So foundationally, the word means offering thanks, giving thanks in everything. Of course, Eucharist is connected to communion, right? Jesus lifts the bread. He gives thanks. He gives Eucharistao, that's where we get the Eucharist from. But embedded in the word Eucharist is kara, which is joy. Think about it. Thanksgiving and joy are linked. In other words, you and I get to choose joy regardless of the circumstances. Isn't that scripture? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, I'm in prison, I'm choosing joy, and he encourages the church at Philippi to join him in his joy journey. But you know, there's one more beautiful word embedded in Eucharisteo. Not only is it thanksgiving and joy, and it's, it's wonderful, it's also grace. Because the Greek word charis is in that word. And so think about living like this. If we took any given day of our life, regardless of the circumstances, said, Lord, I'm going to give thanks and everything for this is your will, even the tough stuff. I'm going to choose joy, and joy is a choice. It's not an emotion, it's a choice. But then I'm going to believe, as Scripture says, that you are a God of grace and that you shower us every day with grace gifts. That's a great way to live, folks. And then you know what'll happen? When those difficult days knock on your door, 
You could choose joy. You can experience grace. You can give thanks because God's will is being worked out in your life. You could be part of the remnant, part of the faithful leaning in. I want to introduce you to a book this morning. Ellen's read it. I'm two or three chapters into it. It's called 1,000 Gifts. And this gal went on a journey because she had a, uh, a really difficult experience in her childhood that she needed to overcome. Her brother got run over on the farm by a truck just doing a delivery. And from that moment in her life, she was scarred regarding her relationship with God. And she didn't know what to do with that. And sometimes she'd go to church and that nightmare would continue to haunt her. But as she grew up into her teen years, adult years, and, and the book walks you forward, folks, there was one trial after another. There was one difficulty after another. But what Anne learned to do was choose thanksgiving, joy, and grace as a part of God working out his will in her life. And so she comes up with the encouragement that any given day, you and I can pause and do what? Sit down and write the grace gifts in our life. A few weeks ago, I was praying and felt like I just didn't have a lot to pray about and was stuck in my prayer life. And I says, well, let's flip it to praise. And when you move from prayer, intercession, asking for things to praise, thanking God for things, guess what happens? Everything changed. It is 10 times, 100 times easier to praise God because he has blessed us with so many good gifts. And so what I want to do is I want to practice God's Eucharist live with you this morning. So we're going to do what I call popcorn praise. As a youth pastor, we could do this, and it was just fun, and everybody would participate, but you're adults and you're mature, right? But here's the deal. You already did a rap. So if you did a rap, you could definitely do a praise. We're going to spend a minute or two. I want you to stand up and belch it out. One thing you're thankful for today, that you're choosing joy in, that you want to just say, Lord, I stand in awe of you. Who's going to start? Say it again, Tyler. Community. So family, community, great. Someone else. Rest. Who said that? Were you sleeping back behind that machine? Hey, feel free, John. It's all good. Rest is good. Amen. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Saw the Norton family there all week at VBS. Beautiful girls. Yep. Great relationship. Kids. Keep going. Being outside, what does that mean, Caitlin, in like the 104 uh, heat index thing? You like that? Okay, legit. I walked this morning, and I should have had trousers on. I came home sweating. Outside, she likes, well, this is a camp girl, Wildwood, right? Yes, ma'am. Someone else? Okay, for those of you at home, indoor plumbing. I have no idea if I should unpack that, but I will. Indoor plumbing, tell us more. Okay, yes. If you've been in places where they don't, you'll understand. Someone else? Lynn? Yeah, okay. Yes. So every day is a gift. Amen. 
Would you agree with me, guys, that if we chose joy, if we looked through God's grace lens, the gifts, the 1,000 gifts, we could really have a good day even in the midst of the mess. It's just giving thanks for all things. And folks, all means all, even the tough stuff, because God's working out his good, acceptable, and perfect will in our life. So that's the encouragement. <clears throat> walk number two. We start with walking God-focused. Second one, walk faithful-focused. As I've already suggested, there's two group, two groups in this passage. One lost faith, guys, and that happens all the time, not just in Judaism and Israel, but in Christianity too. There's a lot of people aborting the mission, not finishing well. So where do we get it from? Look at uh, verse 14. You have said, and what I'm highlighting here, it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And so friends, again, as a pastor for quite some time, uh, we see people pour themselves out. We see them living generous with their time, treasure, talent, and touch. But periodically, there comes a time in your life and mine that we just ask the honest question, is it really worth it? Has my investment paid off? And how do I know? That's really innate to the text. Now, if you think this is only coming uh, at the end of the Old Testament, this is an issue throughout Scripture. Let me give you a few examples. A righteous man named uh, Asaph wrote Psalm 73. You might want to read Psalm 73. But look at what he says. He asks this question. He's talking to God. He's struggling with his faith. He's in this crucial moment. He says, did I purify my heart? Did I wash my hands in innocence? Notice, for nothing. Is this righteous lifestyle in vain? That's what he's asking. It's a valid question, but can I encourage you? Read Psalm 73. He'll give you the rest of the answer, which is beautiful and typical of the Psalms. Job struggled. Job 9, if you know the book of Job, it's, it's a lot of questions, a lot of tension, a lot of frustration. Job says, why should I labor in vain? I've lived this life. It seems like I was honoring God. And look at the results. And it was sad. And they had three buddies come along. And they didn't help, they hurt. And boy, it went from bad to worse. Now, the Apostle Paul, he wasn't exempt. He wrote to Galatian church, and he writes these words. Look at what he says. He says to the church, I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Ministers the gospel, plants the church in Asia Minor, Galatia. They reverted back to keeping the law. Got to perform, got to do to please God. He says, did I come here in vain? Was my ministry in Galatia for naught? We're struggling to embrace these tensions in the faith journey. When Ellen and I got introduced to Mali, West Africa, it came through a dear saint named Roger Hahn, and I want to show you his picture this morning. He's a beautiful man. Uh, he came to our church, and we did a multi-church uh, weekend of missions, and he introduced us to Mali. 
I didn't even know where Mali was, had no idea of Mali. I'd been to Maui, which was cool. I'd love a missionary from Maui to come and say, hey, come to Mali and do missions. But he invited us to go to Mali, and we went. Roger spent 20-plus years in West Africa as the regional director for the International Mission Board. He raised a special-need kid overseas, harder than heck. Roger told me this, and boy, did it get my attention. He says, Keith, our family has invested over two decades in our, of our life in West Africa, and we can count five Christians that we know of over 20-plus years. Five. Let me ask you a question. You think Roger ever doubted his call there? Do you think he ever wondered about pouring his life out with a special needs child in West Africa, which is harsher than harsh? Do you think he ever wondered, man, is my service to the Lord fruitful? Did I go to the right place like Nick and Ruth Ripkin? Well, I can tell you a little bit more because we followed as Roger came home and he's deployed now in Richmond, Virginia. He's stateside. We had the privilege to go in for 10 years as part of following up his foundational ministry. They paved the way for prayer. The gospel advanced in a beautiful season. Dozens upon dozens upon dozens of people came to faith in Christ. Elders, leaders, mission compounds were established in villages in one country of the many that are in West Africa. Roger was one of those guys who was plowing the soil, planting the seed. And he had a belief that his work was based in faithfulness. Be faithful. God will take care of the fruit, right? Isn't that what Paul told us in 1 Corinthians? Some plant the seed, others water the seed. Who's going to give the fruit? God. But you need faithful planters. You need faithful waterers for the fruit to ultimately come. Every farmer knows that. So, folks... As much as we enjoy seeing fruit, you know what God will look at ultimately? Faithfulness. Let me show you one verse. It's in Matthew 25, 21. It's a huge parable. It's the parable of the talents. And some get one talent, two talent, five talent. The issue isn't how many talents you get. The issue is how do you use your talents? Jesus one day is going to welcome us into his kingdom if you know God through Christ, right? He's going to evaluate our life based on one thing, one thing. And here's what it says. His master replied, Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servants. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's joy. Can I encourage you? Be faithful. Trust God for the fruit. Faithfulness should result in fruit, but leave that up to God as Roger Hahn so beautifully demonstrates. Think about the implications of VBS. Gosh, those kids were loved on. They were taught. They were blessed. We had so much fun. The gospel was shared. Who knows when God's going to take that gospel seed, water it in that kid's life, and bear forth the fruit. That's up to him. Let's be faithful. Third, Walk community-focused. Please don't miss this. Stick your nose in the text. This was an aha moment for me this past week. Never saw this before. Matthew 3, or Malachi 3, 16. 
at that time, those who fear the Lord did what? Spoke to one another. Folks, this is beautiful. So the majority of Israel's losing faith. They're struggling. They're drifting. They're pushing back at God. But there's this faithful remnant, and they start encouraging one another. They start building up one another. They start speaking to one another. And boy, community, as Tyler highlighted, took place. Would you agree with me if you were living in Israel, coming back from Babylon, you needed a healthy community? You needed people who were going to speak into your life, words of life. Let me share this with you. Proverbs 18, 21, life and death are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Don't miss this, folks. Life, death. That's how dramatic Proverbs says your tongue, my tongue is. We can be life givers, or we can destroy people's lives with this little instrument. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, plays off of Proverbs all the time. This little uh, instrument, this spark can set a forest aflame, but it can also steer a ship, this little rudder. It can bring life or death. I want to encourage you, be uh, life givers. So, Trevor, can I ask a favor, please? Can you grab me one of those cool posters? Thank you, sir. So, could you grab your cool poster? I say this because I think it's cool. There is a, uh, a program, a ministry called Visual Bible. So, uh, I found out that there were 59 one another's in the Bible. I shouted over to Pastor Jason. I said, could you do something cool with this? He says, yes, because I'm so cool. And here you have it. He plugged it into a program. We paid him a little stipend. And guess what? You have a list of the one another's in Scripture. You know what the dominant one another is? Of course, love. But friends, there's a lot of one another's that we should be living out on a daily basis, encouraging each other, building each other up, speaking words of life. Now, my application is, take a look at this. Notice that there's many Scriptures that fall under you know, different categories. But my challenge to you as you move into today and this coming week, pick two that you haven't exercised in recent days and really try to be a gift to this community, a gift to your neighborhood, a gift to your workplace, a gift to your family, an extended family. Let's bless one another through words of life. Amen? Now, Tyler, can I share your two that you said you're going to work on? Or why don't you just share it? Nice and loud. Okay. All right, so who wants to help hold Tyler uh, accountable this week to not be a grumbler and to not be judging? A lot of hands went up. Man, that's pretty remarkable. Would you agree we all have a little bit of work to do? And, and Tyler's very honest, but folks, there could be, hey, I just haven't encouraged someone, or I haven't spoken words of life. I haven't built someone up. 
Whatever it is, man, lean into that. But I'll tell you something. This list is going in my office and it's going in my home. It's getting a place to remember how important community is. Could you imagine being back in Israel without those people nurturing godly remnant relationships? We need each other. So let's close out. Walk number four. Walk eternally focused. So stick with me. And this is so cool, guys. Look at verses 16 through 18. The Lord took notice and listened to the community as they talked to each other. Isn't that remarkable? Every conversation, biblically speaking, God sees, he hears, he listens, he takes notice. Now, that's beautiful when you're speaking well. But if you're not speaking so well, that could be very challenging. Would you agree? There's accountability there. So the Lord took notice. And notice this, the next piece. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared Yahweh and had high regard for his name. A book of remembrance? God doesn't have to remember. He knows everything, right? Why does he have a book of remembrance? There's coming a day when you stand before the Lord, the books will be open and your life will be revealed. Again, blessing, but high accountability. Let's keep going. And then notice what Yahweh says. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, a special possession on that day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. Now, time's up, so I'm going to condense the next three points, but I want to give them to you. God remembers everything, right? He's omniscient. But three things in Scripture I want to encourage you for from the text. Number one, God remembers your work. If sometimes you think you're getting skipped over, nobody takes notice, guess what? God takes notice. Can I share with you Hebrews 6.10? For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you served the saints and you continue to serve them. God is just. He will remember your work. He's watching. He's listening. He's recording. Secondly, he remembers your words. It's right from the text. He listens to every conversation. Isn't that scary? That's pretty scary, guys. But it's also pretty beautiful when your words are life-giving. Ellen and I had lunch with a couple last week and just enjoyed lunch together, and Peanut was there, and Ellen had to leave early with our granddaughter, and then we hung out with this couple for another hour. I did. And as I drove home, I said, man, that was life-giving. Thank you, Lord. That's how it should be, folks. We give life to each other through words, through encouragement, through blessing. Thank you, Lord. And then finally, your tears. And again, this is a difficult time for Israel. And why do I highlight tears? And I'm only going to show you one verse out of many. If we could flip John to Psalm 56, 8. You yourself, meaning Yahweh, have recorded my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your records? You know what the Bible says? God uses an ancient practice called tear bottles. And I've seen these all over Israel. You can buy them two, three hundred dollars. They're pretty fragile, but they're really sweet. And part of their mourning practices in the ancient world is they would cry and they would collect tears. And sometimes they would offer them at a funeral. Sometimes they would offer them if a soldier comes home. I've missed you. I've loved you. I've been 
crying for you. God, the Bible says, has a tear bottle. He collects our tears. He knows our hurts. He knows our brokenness. He knows our pain. He's with us through the difficult circumstances. Aren't you glad for that? So let me invite the worship team to come forward. Let me bring you back to Nick and Ruth Ripken. What happened with this dear couple who lost their son, lost four colleagues to martyrdom, and saw the church go from 150 to a handful? They came home demoralized. Can you imagine how difficult it was? They came home with more questions than answers, had no idea why God would let them go through all that pain, call them to Somalia, and their life seemed to be wiped out. The rest of the story is beautiful. God called them to learn from the church around the world who endures persecution everywhere. And so they went from country to country and continent to continent, from people group to people group. They gave years of their life to meeting the persecuted church globally. You know what happened? They saw that the persecuted church wasn't just uh, surviving, it was thriving. Why? They embraced what it meant to fear God. To stand in awe of him by the power of the Holy Spirit, regardless of the circumstances, and lean in and do as well. They wrote two books, The Insanity of God is a Must Read, and then The Insanity of Obedience. Yes, it pays to be obedient. If you like movies, get the movie Insanity of God. It is transformational. It is their story. So God works, and it's mysterious, two groups of people. Let's be in the remnants. Let's be that faithful community. Let's bring words of life to each other. Let's Eucharist every day. Thank you, God. Choose joy. It's his way. Let's stand. Let's close the worship.